Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It takes us two hours to go the last six miles, but we get to Thornfield Hall in Chapter 11. Jane arrives and is welcomed with lovely generosity by Mrs. Fairfax, the woman with whom Jane corresponded about the position. Mrs. Fairfax undoes the ribbons of Jane's bonnet because she figures that Jane's fingers must be stiff from the cold. Jane is bowled over by the kindness and a little concerned that her new boss is so familiar, given their differences in position. Jane is given a small, homey room to sleep in. She's so tired from her journey and all of the deep anxiety of setting on a new life that she falls deep asleep quickly. In the morning, everything about her new home is a little elegant, but not over the top. And Jane is pretty darn delighted with the place. Jane hears about her student, who is not Mrs. Fairfax's daughter, as Jane suspected, because Mrs. Fairfax is not mistress of the house, but is in fact the housekeeper. Ah, so she wasn't being overly familiar. Even better. It turns out that the house belongs to a Mr. Rochester. In fact, all of the land nearby belongs to Mr. Rochester. Mrs. Fairfax doesn't understand how Jane did not know this. Isn't Mr. Rochester just a well-known fact of life to everyone? In the house, in addition to Mrs. Fairfax, we meet Adele, Mr. Rochester's ward, Sophie, her nurse, Leah, a maid, Grace Poole, another maid, and John, the carriage driver. These people live their lives around a center that is not there. Mr. Rochester, the owner of the house, is gone for whole seasons at a time without showing his face. But everyone acts like his return could happen at any moment because he likes it when he arrives and the house is ready for him. Mrs. Fairfax takes us on a detailed tour of the house. There is a third floor and an attic with old furniture in disuse that Jane finds a little creepy. And while up there, she hears some people laughing, sad, haunted laughs. Jane asks Mrs. Fairfax who it is. Those maids, Grace Poole and maybe Leah, Mrs. Fairfax tells us. Jane gets to know and begins to teach Adele. Adele is sweet, French, and has been raised to entertain and maybe to flirt. But her connection to Mr. Rochester is vague. Jane gets to know the rhythms of the house. 
Grace Poole laughs loudly and strangely, so much so that Jane would think it was a haunting laugh. But it's often during the day, and Grace Poole is taciturn when you see her face to face. Plus, Mrs. Fairfax says that there is no rumor of a ghost at Thornfield, so nothing creepy's going on here. In Chapter 12, Jane gets into a routine, and then gets restless. She guesses that we blame her for it, and that we all get together and call her discontented. But she tells us that her sole relief was to walk along the corridor of the third story backwards and forwards, safe in the silence and solitude of the spot, and allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it. And then she hears Grace Poole's laugh again, which thrills her. October, November, and December pass. Adele has a cold and so is taking the day off. Mrs. Fairfax has written a letter, so Jane decides to walk the two miles in the winter wind and post the letter. While on that walk, she sees a vision of a guy trash, a mythical dog or horse that Bessie taught Jane about. The guy trash sometimes comes upon travelers to haunt them. Jane gets scared until she sees a man as part of the image and then hears the would-be guy trash being called Pilot. It turns out that the guy trash is just a very large dog with a man on a horse riding in its wake. All at once, a horse slips on a patch of ice and the man riding it falls too. This man is Mr. Rochester, but Jane doesn't know it yet. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Rochester. I think we really have to see Rochester as a romantic, like a romantic with a capital R Byron kind of romantic figure that is kind of dark, dangerous, unknown, a man who has a secret that we can sense, but it's that secret that kind of keeps us interested. This is very much the Byronic subjectivity of like Child Harold's pilgrimage and just Byron's like general, I mean, he was a celebrity. It's part of his persona in culture. One of his lovers wrote that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And I really think that is the kind of identity that Charlotte Bronte wanted for that romantic hero. You know, Jane is a very curious figure. She's She wants to know things, and Rochester is a mystery. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. When Jane first sees Rochester, she thinks he's part of a goblin-like image. She first talks to him when he is on his knees on a moonlit path in the dead of winter. The first sentence he says to her is basically, get the fuck away from me, as he tries to figure out how injured he is and whether or not he blames her for the injury. He asks who she is. She works at Thornfield Hall, but not as a maid. Ah, governess. That weird in-between position, neither servant nor member of the household. He starts to mess with her head immediately, asking if she knows Mr. Rochester. His ankle is sprained, so he asks her to help him to his horse, and he gets back on it and rides off. He is the first man she has touched in living memory who has not hit her. Jane then goes and posts the letter. It was an exciting interlude, but nothing more, she thinks. When she returns to Thornfield, it's all a bustle. Jane is confused, and then she sees the guy trash slash Newfoundland in the house. Pilot, she calls wonderingly. 
the now clearly dog comes and sniffs her. Jane asks Leah where Pilot came from. With his master. Who the heck is his master? Mr. Rochester. Then Jane goes upstairs to take off her things. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Just before we hear from you, Lauren, we want to tell everyone about our Patreon. Patreon is currently the only way that we are able to financially support this show. And there's some really fun things over there. So if you want to hear an extra bonus conversation with me and Lauren, if you want to be a part of a Jane Eyre book club, go over to our Patreon and help us make this show. We love making it and we're so grateful to you for your support. Okay, Lauren, tell us, what do we have to know before we dive into the specifics of these very weird chapters? Okay, so I know I have gone here before about slang and about double meanings in this book, but it's so much fun I can't resist. And I actually think that the thing I'm about to tell you is really significant when it comes to how this book has been interpreted. So as we learn, there's a lot of time that is spent in the upper story of the house, the third story of the house. Jane continues to go up there to explore it. It's the only place that she feels like she can really think and feel and be herself internally. And every time she goes up there, she keeps reminding us she's on the third story. She's on the third story. So it was that the upper story was slang for the mind. So we even have a letter that Charlotte wrote a friend in 1847 in which she says, is her upper story sound? Meaning, is she crazy? And this is an interpretation of Jane Eyre that what ends up happening up there is in fact something that is happening in Jane's own mind and not externalized. And as we spend more time in that upper story, as we start discovering its complexities and mysteries that will become more and more complicated, I think that whether or not we buy the assessment that whatever is to happen up there is just happening in her mind, there is still a layer of meaning that Bronte is cueing there. There's another pun. <laughs> because I just can't resist these puns. So this one, this one is a little naughty and I especially love it because we're about to start getting into the part of the book where there's a lot of suggestion of sex, even if there isn't a lot of sex happening. And Bronte starts layering that in even before we meet the object of desire. So we've spent a lot of time talking about power in this podcast so far. We're about to start really talking about desire. And one of the moments that Bronte flags is when Rochester falls First of all, Jane sets down her muff, which at the time, and we have records of this going back to 1699, was the same thing that muff means now, right? It's a slang term referring to the vagina or to female pubic hair. And she says, I should have been afraid to touch a horse when alone, but when told to do it, I was disposed to obey. I put down my muff on the stile and went up to the tall steed. I endeavored to catch the 
bridle, but it was a spirited thing and would not let me come near its head. I made effort on effort, though in vain. Meantime, I was mortally afraid of trampling its forefeet. The traveler waited and watched for some time, and at last he laughed. And it was like, okay, wow. If we're reading that as setting down a muff, there's a whole way that we can read that paragraph. And I get so much pleasure out of that wordplay as we are bringing him into our story here. Do you think that that is like intentional Dumble entendres? I mean, I don't know. I wish that we had, I wish we had her notes on this. I will say, I think that there was a lot of intentionality that went into crafting this meeting. None of this is written accidentally. And I think that she really wants to lay out, you know, this process of, I was restless. I was desiring. I went out to Rome. There was this man. He was dark. He was on a horse. And this is what happened. And so because she's already played with the word birds, the way that we discussed in the first chapter, because she's given us these little hints of language throughout I have to say, I wouldn't be surprised if it was really obscure. Yeah. That would be one thing. But as much as we would know what it meant if we wrote the word muff right now, so would Charlotte Bronte. I certainly think that so much thought goes into this meeting. It is the inverse of the damsel in distress. The man falls, slips on ice and needs help. And then she can't tame this horse. So she is forced to touch him. And he says, do you have an umbrella or something I can use as a walking stick? Okay, then I must make use of you. Right. And he like drapes himself over her. It's this very intense bodily capital R romantic meeting. I mean, to talk about power, I love that right out of the gate, she's the one with more power than him. Right. He's physically brought to his knees. Which I do think really gets set because we have this whole monologue of her desire that leads up to this, which brings us to our close reading in this chapter. And I wonder if you wanted to read it. Yeah. So it's this paragraph where Jane is doing her third floor walk that you're talking about, her upper level walk. And Jane says, it is vain to say human beings ought to be satisfied with tranquility. They must have action and they will make it if they cannot find it. Millions are condemned to a stiller doom than mine and millions are in silent revolt against their lot. Nobody knows how many rebellions besides political rebellions ferment in the masses of life which people earth. And then she goes on, right, that like women are supposed to be calm, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties, that we must be active. It's not enough to be safe. I need adventure. It's funny because Virginia Woolf wrote about how these were the passages in the book that she couldn't stand, right? When Bronte lays it out where there's this sort of discourse about women and desire and equality and, you know, from a modernist sensibility that's so to Wolf stole from the novel. And yet I really exalt in these passages. I believe that we're inside Jane's mind and that it's not simply Bronte lecturing us. And I find it thrilling. I think there's something really interesting about her describing the political rebellions that ferment in the masses. I mean, this is also the time of Karl Marx. It's a time of 
thinking about not just the labor of the masses, but the experience of the masses and what it means to not be a Rochester in the world who just has access to capital and can come and go as he pleases. I think that there's this way of identifying with humanity, which is very much of its moment in a very progressive way. And that would have really spoken to readers then and definitely speaks to me right now. Yeah, I agree. It is very on the nose. And yet it is exactly the kind of thought that I remember having at various points in my life. I mean, Virginia Woolf might be accusing Jane Eyre of being basic, but like, I am no better, right? I I can imagine like pacing and being like, I need just as much whatever it was. I was told once that I when I look at what my brothers eat, I should eat half of it. Right. And it's like, I need just as much food as they do. And so I feel very seen by this. And I also think that it's important, you know, given what we've been talking about in terms of what we want the poor to expect, right? Like we think that, okay, you now have a good enough job. You now have a safe place to sleep. What you also want to be happy. It's like, only a certain class of people gets to have adventure and go to the opera and go to museums and travel to the continent, right? And because she's poor, she's just supposed to be happy because she got a governess job. I hesitate to use the word intersectional because obviously there is a total absence of the racial element here. However, Jane is definitely speaking from the intersection of poverty and womanhood. So Obviously, Victorian women of great wealth were still expected to be the angel in the house. They were still part of the critique that she is giving here of the tranquility that is expected, the behavior that is expected. And yet, of course, they could be tranquil in Paris. (laughs) They could be tranquil at the opera. Whereas someone like Jane is literally just supposed to have this incredibly stultifying existence where she performs her work day after day after day with no variance, no desire, no exploration of the larger world that she so clearly yearns for. And I think so many of us relate to that yearning and to feel both the experience of it from hearing that there is a master of the house who is just off roaming the world and then wanting things to be perfectly prepared for him whenever he deigns to show up unannounced with no plan at all compared to Jane, who is now, whether or not she is a servant or a teacher, you know, that that in-between space that you so brilliantly mentioned, she still is a domestic worker. Her world is to be employed within literally the house and has no life beyond it. And that discrepancy of the degree of Rochester's freedom and the total trap that she is in, no matter where she is because of who she is, I feel it so deeply. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the comparison of Rochester and Jane, right? Rochester, who is so all powerful in this area that the fact of him is just supposed to be known, right? I mean, Mrs. Fairfax at one point is like, of course, you know, Mr. Rochester. And she's like, how would I know Mr. Rochester? It wasn't in your response to the advertisement and you haven't mentioned him. Like, why is this a foregone conclusion? And that Rochester can have a whole house that is simultaneously falling into some disrepair because he's never there and yet is like 
kept at the ready for the fires to be lit and every room is constantly dusted lest he deign to come home. And she is simultaneously thrilled with this beautiful room that she's been given and is like, but I want more than that, right? Like I'm grateful for this beautiful room and I like this really pretty house. And she says, right, like I was young and things that are pleasing to the eye make the young happy. And I'm like, I'm middle aged and it still makes me happy. But yeah, this, I guess it is sort of like the Disney I want more song, but I'm always very moved by those songs. Yeah, I want more. I want to go on an adventure. I get it. And I think that, you know, the adventures that he gets to go on and the way that he gets to return home is the very definition of privilege. And also, I think the very definition of his power in many ways. And I think that she just weaves that together with her desire, that absence of power and how accepting an absence of power does not quell desire. It only foments it in so many ways. And for her, I love that she uses the word rebellion a couple times because the mere desire is rebellion in this situation. The unwillingness to even internally, even within her own upper story, accept the fact that she should simply be grateful and satisfied. Yeah. How do you read Mrs. Fairfax in light of that? Because Mrs. Fairfax strikes me as someone who is fairly satisfied. She's the housekeeper and she has an interesting amount of power, right? She literally holds the keys to the house and the keys to the storeroom and she hands them to Leah and takes them away and she decides who gets what room. She talks about how she can only talk to servants in a certain way because she has to maintain her power. And yet we know, right, she's like an old widow in a man's world. And she's lonely. You know, the fact that she yeah. needs to maintain domestic power means that she doesn't get to have intimacy with anyone who lives in the house. And she's so grateful that Jane is there for some sort of intimacy for her. I also think, you know, obviously she's already experienced sex and domesticity and those sort of elements that may potentially in the best case scenario satisfy a woman like mrs fairfax so she has that to look back on and i think that she represents a different phase of life albeit maybe one who accepts it more than you or i or jane might yeah and then the other character right that we have to spend some time with is Adele, this little French girl who Jane has been hired to come take care of. I mean, like, isn't she a mirror of Jane? She is eight or nine, around the same age that Jane was when we met her. She is an orphan who has been taken in by someone who doesn't really want to take her in. And yet, because she's been given Jane, instead of having to live with Mrs. Reed or being sent to Lowood, she's going to have such a different life. But there is this like really precise mirror of Jane to Adele. But it's interesting because in some ways, Adele is Jane in negative. You know, Jane has such a deep inner life and Bronte presents Adele as though Adele has no inner life at all. Like Adele is essentially a child courtesan who exists to perform sexy operatic numbers and toss her redundancy of curls around, which, as I think we will increasingly discuss, is throwing such shade on the French. I don't know, though. It just strikes me as so sad, right? Like Adele tells us that she was 
taught to sit on men's knees and recite these little sexy songs and poems. And Jane imagines that the allure of it is hearing such mature words with a child's lisp. I'm not sure how much we're like as sad as this scene is. I'm also not sure how much it's supposed to be like played for comedy. Mrs. Fairfax is sitting there watching and she doesn't understand anything that's going on. Sophie is watching silently. And then Adele goes, should I now dance for you? And Jane is like, no, no, that's okay. You don't need to dance for me. Right? Like, it's just interesting the ways that Jane and Adele's stories are similar and where they differ and how these two girls differ. And another thing that Adele's presence flags in this chapter is a whole other element of Rochester that we clearly have yet to discover, right? So we know that Adele is his ward. We know that he has provided a nurse and now hired a governess. It's a lot of effort to go through for this mystery child from France. And so there's a lot of curiosity that surrounds that, but then there's also a lot of complication around who Rochester might be. Because other than that, can we just talk for another moment about how Rochester runs this show with pretending that he's not Rochester and then just showing up at the house? I mean, at the end of the second chapter that we're discussing here, at the end of chapter 12, I literally just wrote the word men with a question mark because it's like, are you kidding me? He's that guy. He's that guy who's going to like mess with you at the bar and make up some whole fake story as some sort of flirtation that's going to take you down a little notch just to make sure that you found out that you were taken down a notch. I mean, I, I love this Roxanne Everly quote that we included before about how, yes, he's mad, bad, and dangerous. He is that Byronic guy. He is the bad news. And there's something that I think so many of us feel about feeling both attracted to that and repelled by that. I mean, I often despise that guy who's going to just fuck with you for fun. And yet there's always this element of me that feels a little peaked, like I want to gain power over that by making that person desire me enough to either reject them or see where it's going to go. Right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely love the idea of Rochester as this Byronic hero, because I find stories about Byron insufferable, right? Like there's a story about Byron that he was annoyed that at whichever school, Oxford or Cambridge, he wasn't allowed a dog, but there was no rule about not having pet bears. So he got a pet bear. Like that guy still exists, right? When I was in college, it was the guy who wore a bathrobe instead of a a coat all winter. And it was like, I don't know why he thought that that made him interesting, but it also worked. Like girls would go up to him and be like, aren't you cold? And I was like, stop asking. You're <laughs> like giving him what he wants. But it's also a trope in the genre of romance, right? And one that I think really originated in the romantic era, which Bronte's carrying into the Victorian era was such a wink. But how do we feel about this? Why is it that there's such an allure, such a peaked curiosity about these guys who are introduced at the beginning of a romance as just straight up assholes? I mean, it does have to be about their power, right? We don't get that amount of power, but imagine having so much power that you could fuck with people. Like there's something stunning and beautiful about that amount of confidence, that amount of 
assuredness and like that comes from being financially stable and physically safe of, of walking through your life not scared. And so I think part of what's so attractive is the sheer privilege of it. There's something attractive about confidence and there's a kind of confidence that is only born out of never having been desperate a moment in your life. Although there's also, you know, the trope of the guy on the motorcycle and that sort of 50s old school mad, bad and dangerous. And I actually feel like it's it's probably to me more the dangerous than the privilege that might be alluring, that feeling that something that is unsafe is sexy, that there is an erotic excitement to something that doesn't feel like it's where you belong or what you can predict that Jane has just told us how much she craves adventure and in roles adventure in the form of this Jolie led guy who's messing with her head. And there's something about that type that I think so many of us try to resist and yet they still get in there. Yeah. I mean, at least they're not boring. And you might not be allowed to have any adventures, but you sure as hell can if you're married to him. That is your only opportunity for any sort of adventure. I think, though, that it's it's there's an element of intimacy in it and of, of feeling selected, feeling special. So yes. if you're the only one he's going to show his pain to, it feels like magic. And if you're going to be able to do that on the back of his motorcycle, then you're getting it all. I mean, the other thing that's so interesting, and I think that this is also a trope that continues today, is that he's not objectively hot, but I think he's hot trope. And we also see that in Jane, right? One of Jane's desires that she explicitly says in these chapters is, I wish I was prettier. And she says, I care a lot about being neat and tidy, but I wish I wasn't so small. I wish my features were more regular. Her paleness, she talks about a lot. Yeah, right. Like she she wishes that she was more pleasing. Even just what's so interesting to me is that she sidesteps the why. She says, I had my reason for it and it was a logical one. And then she doesn't tell us what it is. And then the conclusion she comes to is at least I'm not so ugly that I'll repel my student. But she does like it makes her sad that she's not pretty. And I feel like I love that that is made explicit in this, right? That it's okay for Rochester to not be gorgeous. Like Jane thinks it's fine, actually preferential that Rochester isn't gorgeous, but it really bothers her that she isn't. So I think at this point, it's actually very much sort of a shifting from the male gaze to the female gaze in a way where if we were seeing this from the male gaze, it would be a real issue because she's essentially saying if he was handsome, this would have really mattered to me, but he wasn't. So it didn't matter to me at all. And that's, you know, that's really damning. And it's, it's interesting because she uses it as a source of power, which I get. She's been made to feel unbeautiful her whole life. She's never been allowed to feel the power of beauty. And so at least there's some equity there. But on the other hand, it's, it's pretty damning. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Vanessa, do you think that this is the moment, this chapter in the book, when this book starts getting really gothic? It seems to me like this is when we start bringing in the creepy laugh and the creepy third floor. And there's this shift from this sort of realism to something that feels supernatural. Yeah. One of the things that I love about this book so much is that with one exception, everything that initially appears to be supernatural turns out to not be supernatural. And we see that so much in these two chapters, right? There's this maniacal laugh that Jane hears that seems to be coming from the rafters out of nowhere. And then it it turns out that it's Grace Poole. And whether or not it's actually Grace Poole, it doesn't matter, right? It turns out that it's coming from a human body. Jane thinks she sees a guy trash, but it turns out that it's a Newfoundland. There are all of these moments that have gothic elements and then turn out to be justified in the real world. And I think that one of the things that Bronte is pointing us to is that even if something isn't supernatural, it still can be malevolent. Like she's still afraid of Pilot once she realizes he's a Newfoundland, right? Like we see her at the end of this second chapter being like, I didn't like petting him. He was creepy, right? And Grace Poole, like that situation is also going to turn out to be creepy. So just because it isn't supernatural doesn't mean that it isn't insidious in some way. Can I interject one thing that I learned about the guy trash, which is that it, and this isn't something that Bronte tells us on the page, but a guy trash was this supernatural creature in the north of England that would come upon travelers and could either lead them astray. So they were feared, but they also could guide them to where they belong. And I love that that's in there because we don't know if Jane is where she's supposed to be or not, or if Rochester is. So on the one hand, yes, we know it's just in Newfoundland, but she's just dropping enough cultural reference there. She's sampling in this way so that for a reader, there's this little peaked moment. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this speaks to the whole larger conversation we've been having about how she's inverting all these questions of power throughout 
you know, the Gothic form is something that historically is always considered around questions of power, right? It's like the monster and the vulnerable maiden, or it's, you know, the scary demon and the person that the demon threatens. And in this situation, we're introduced to Rochester as this sort of hulking monster type even. And Jane is this vulnerable, pale, orphan fairy girl. And yet it's she who saves him in this moment. And I think that we're just going to keep seeing these tropes turned on their head over and over and over. But she's still working within this vernacular. She's letting us know that they're tropes that she's messing with. Yeah. Another, uh, I love that you called it sampling. Another story that she samples it through here is the Bluebeard story. She mentions that the mansion, as she's walking through it, conjures the story of Bluebeard, which is an ancient fairy tale about a woman who marries a man who all of his wives have died mysteriously. And he goes out of town for a weekend and hands her the keys to the house and is like, do whatever you want. Just don't go into this one room. Of course, she goes into the one room and she finds the dead bodies of all of his previous wives. Don't you hate it when that happens? I hate it when that happens. I know it's it's the worst. But what (laughs) ends up happening in Bluebeard is that she and her family kill him and she becomes really rich because she inherits the house. And so there's this other layered story under this where Jane is like, I'm walking around this Bluebeard mansion. But if it's a Bluebeard mansion, then whoever the woman is, is going to end up, you know, as the rich master of the house with all of the power. And so it's interesting that she's bringing in this like really creepy story where the woman is going to emerge victorious as long as she's not one of the dead previous wives. So this is all part of why during the second wave in the 70s, like even just pre-Gilbert and Gubar, but certainly including Gilbert and Gubar, who we've discussed so much, of course, there was this invention of the notion of the female Gothic. Because in this attempt to to build a canon of women writers, I mean, so many women, if they wrote at all, wrote in genre. And so much of this genre before women wrote it was not about women finding power at all. And then it was something that these authors reclaimed in, of course, the 18th century. And then in the 1970s, it was reclaimed again and put on a different shelf where it remains. But it's interesting because there are a lot of thinkers now who feel like, oh, this is just essentialism, this way of thinking about cis heterosexual women exclusively and thinking of power as something that you either have or you don't. And it's always in this fight with some other figure, usually a man who has all the power and then you claim the power that this element of Gothic storytelling is actually, as they say, quite problematic. Does it rub you the wrong way? I don't know whether or not the Gothic in general does that, right? Like I only really know this novel as far as Gothic and Northanger Abbey, which is, you know, a satire of Gothic novels. But I don't think this book makes it simple. I think that the the Gothic elements of this book wreak havoc on both of their lives. And the sin is laid at the feet of patriarchy and capitalism and imperialism. But I, I think that everyone is complicit and everybody gets impacted by it. Everyone sort of gets cut off at the knees by these Gothic elements. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why this is a 
book that we keep returning to over and over. It answers my question to myself, why, if this is not one of my absolute favorite books, do I find myself reading it over and over and over? And I think you've just nailed that. Okay, so next week, Lauren, we have chapter 13. We're just doing one chapter and it is this big conversation. It is when Rochester and Jane are meeting and they both know that they are meeting and who they are meeting. What are you excited for? All right. So after all this Rochester bashing, the chemistry between them in this chapter, I am excited for that. Yeah, it's some really quality flirting that's happening. I keep thinking about the meet cute. I keep thinking about this moment in romances where the romantic leads meet. But the moment, of course, in this chapter, there's nothing cute about it to me. And I wanted to call up someone who knows more about romantic comedy than anyone I've ever met. In fact, she got her doctorate in romantic comedy better known these days for writing a fabulous book called Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself. Her name is Chloe Angel, and let's get her on the phone to see if she can talk to us about the meet cute. Hi, Chloe. Hey, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I'm so excited to be here. I've been loving the podcast. Thank you. So first of all, can you define the meet cute for us? The meet cute is the memorable, momentous moment where the romantic couple meet for the first time. It often involves an accident or a mistaken identity or a fight, something that signals that this is going to be a story and that this love story that is worth telling is going to have a beginning that's worthy of the rest of the story. Um, so it might not be cute. And, you know, in the case of Jane and Rochester, it's definitely not cute. It's scary, but it is momentous and it does set the tone for what the rest of the love story is going to be. So was there the formula of the meet cute in romances before Jane Eyre? There is a tradition of the two main love interest characters. And I'm trying to avoid the practice of heroine and hero here because that's super heteronormative. Although obviously in most romances of the Jane era and before they were straight romances, but there is a tradition of those two people meeting in a way that is not auspicious. And then that first meeting becomes one of the first of many obstacles that they have to overcome. So you think of, you know, Elizabeth and Darcy meeting for the first time in very inauspicious circumstances. And that becomes one of the hurdles that they have to surmount as they fall in love over the course of the romance. We've been talking about Rochester as this Byronic hero, this mad, bad and dangerous guy. Do you think that when Bronte created this meet cute, it created a new formula, a new way of thinking about romantic heroes, if I may say that, and how we meet them in a way that just feels incredibly toxic that we then got stuck with for until now? I do think it sends this message that there is something 
romantic and admirable about catastrophe of all kinds. He could have, he could have died. She could have died. The dog could have died. The horse could have died. Every, you know, everyone could have sustained really serious injury, which in those days would have resulted in sort of permanent bodily damage. And there is this sense that like the worse the beginning is, the more well-earned and triumphant the happy ending will be, which can lead you to some toxic is a good word, can lead you to some really toxic places. And you have this sort of tradition of enemies to lovers romances where, you know, two people who, you know, as a reader or a viewer are eventually going to end up falling in love with each other, spend the first 30 to 60% of the book or film, just tearing strips off each other. And then there's got to be this sharp turn where the reader or viewer is asked to accept that these two people who've been behaving very badly and treating each other very badly are suddenly people we should be rooting for and we should be rooting for them to be together. And often all that results in is like, good, they deserve each other. I don't want them to date anyone else. Like, good, keep them together so they can't go be toxic with anyone else. But why do you think that works on us? Why is there this this element of our own desire as readers or as viewers to have a guy be a dick in a super manipulative way that then makes us hate him and then makes us want him and want to love him and love him eventually? Because part of the fantasy is that it's our love that changes him. It's our special, unique love that no other woman possesses that can change him from being a manipulative, ironic, toxic dick to someone who is worthy of us and worthy of our love and who can love us the way that we need and deserve to be loved. It's a really potent fantasy that, you know, it's the reason, it's the reason why reality bites is a beloved movie. It's, it's this trope that comes back over and over again. You know, the dark brooding, ironic, miserable hero who with the love of the a good woman and the right woman, us will become the lover and sort of nurturer that we need him, that we need him to be that he always was. And that all those other inferior women could not reveal. Well, Chloe, thank you for picking up the phone and sharing your very particular wisdom on this topic. <laughs> thank you for making this podcast. I'm enjoying it so much. You've been listening to On Air. We are a small show, so we need your support in order to run. So if you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Molly Baxter. We are distributed by Acast. We want to thank Roxanne Eberly and Chloe Angel for talking to us this week. Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, Laura Glass, and Emma Smith, and all of our patrons. Thanks so much, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.